Welcome to another episode of the Bump, Birth and Beyond podcast. My name's Nikki and I'm the co-founder of Tiny Hearts Education. Today we're going to be switching things up and I'll be interviewing our regular host, Dr. Joe, to chat about all things COVID-19 and pregnancy. We've had lots of you sending through questions, so I'm going to jump straight into our conversation and give you the answers you need. Thank you so much for joining us today, Joe. Um, obviously, you will have some really great advice and information to provide to our parents. But before we start, do you have any general comments that you wanted to make before I get into the questions that our um, community have put forward? Yeah. Hi, Nikki. And uh, look, this is obviously a very stressful time for a lot of people as we enter in really what is uncharted waters for our generation. And something like this obviously is causing a high level anxiety. You guys are obviously getting your inbox full on a regular basis in terms of questions and same with me as well. I think one of the things that I do want to say is that Australia is probably in a really good position uh, worldwide in respect to the, not only understanding the virus and learning from the lessons from other countries, but we're unique in also our ability to manage situations and have a very robust healthcare sector. And uh, unlike other countries, and particularly if we look at the US where their healthcare sector is very fragmented, we've got a, a very robust healthcare sector with a public and a private sector working well together. And so, you know, whilst, you know, it might appear there's a lot of doom and gloom out there, I can, I can be, I think I'm reasonably confident and certainly the government is reasonably confident we will get through this. That's, a, I think, a really good way to start um, questions like this. There is a lot of information out there at the moment and it is certainly really overwhelming. But for those who are currently pregnant or trying or, um, you know, have a newborn, I, I just can't imagine how anxious they may be. So thanks so much for, for that. So, Joe, can you tell me what advice do you have for women who are um, looking to conceive at this time? Do you think that they should be postponing their plans? So one of the things I think, you know, in terms of all of this, it's a, it's a bit of an ironic situation, but, you know, life will go on and I think the creation of life should go on. And one of the things that we do know that is in, in terms of this pandemic and the impacts that it has in terms of pregnancy and also the baby, whether it be the mother and the baby, and we'll talk about that in a little bit later, but, you know, they are, they are, it is very low risk. And given the fact that we're in an isolation mode and social distancing at this point in time, there's been no recommendation, whether it be from governing bodies, so such as uh, countries, or alternatively the Wealth Health Organisation, or for that matter, any of the Royal Colleges of Obstetrics and Gynaecology that have suggested that women shouldn't conceive at this time. So, you know, as an obstetrician, we'd like to think that that people, if they want to conceive, would continue to want to, to continue to try during this time. Fantastic. I saw yesterday your post, the heartbreaking news about women um, unable to complete their fertility treatments at the moment due to the new government restrictions. What kind of impact have you seen on couples who are trying to have a baby at the moment? Yeah, the last couple of days have been exceptionally hard for a lot of people and, and, and even for myself as a fertility specialist. I mean, a lot of people think doctors are immune to the emotions that uh, patients have, but, you know, we obviously transfer a lot of that emotion, emotional energy onto ourselves, whether it be negative or positive. And, and it's been a hard couple of days. And, and I suppose I said before that life goes on, but the irony in, in all of this is that, you know, we can't create life for those women and couples who are unfortunately unable to conceive. And that's really, I mean, look, it's, it's understandable in the current context. I can understand the government is, 
wanting to limit the amount of resources that we spend on on things that would as they would consider not urgent in terms of category one and category two um, and the difficulty of that of course is how how can we as clinicians and how can we as government dictate what is actually emergent and and what is actually category one and what is category two and a woman who's been trying to conceive for many years and now has been told that she's unable to continue her treatment to her that would seem as the most horrific thing in the world but of course above all of that is the fact that we've got to look after the greater community so we know that you know the limitation in our resources not only in terms of um, actual things such as gloves masks anesthetic gas anesthetic machines but also resources in terms of personnel, anaesthetists, uh, nurses, uh, you know, these are precious resources that we do need to protect in the event that there is a tsunami of patients that come through with respect to ICU and, and emergency departments and high dependency units. So we're doing something for the greater good, but it's difficult when you're sitting there at home in isolation to think that, you know, the prospects of being able to be a mum or be a dad over the course of the coming year are going to be markedly diminished. Mm, yeah, my heart absolutely breaks for those couples that are at that stage. And obviously, you're on the front line dealing with that. So, um, yeah, my heart goes out to you as well. You obviously um, form a really um, beautiful connection with these people and you're just as invested in that process as well. So, um, let's talk about COVID and pregnancy. I um, believe that, you know, a lot of women are worried that are currently pregnant. Um, what, what are the risks with pregnancy and coronavirus? So coronavirus, as we know, of course, it only started in Wuhan towards the latter part of last year. And so a lot of the information that we have specifically about the COVID-19 virus is related to MERS and SARS, which have been uh, preceded uh, COVID-19. They are similar coronatype viruses. Um, Of course, MERS was the Middle Eastern respiratory uh, um, syndrome and then also SARS, which was um, later on in 2003. So a lot of the information that we do have is based on those specific illnesses and, of course, the information now that's coming out of China um, and also now we've got Italy and, and the UK. So it is changing day by day and, of course, a lot of the information that I have is at hand really from the last week of the information that we do know. One thing we know about pregnancy itself is that, you know, women are quite resilient and fortunately, you know, most women are fit and healthy. And so the vast majority of women, if they do end up uh, having the COVID virus, will end up experiencing very minor symptoms. So cough, cold, runny nose and the like. The difficulty is, of course, in pregnancy, there are changes to the immune system, which could mean that if a woman does uh, get the COVID virus, particularly later on in pregnancy, that she might have a little bit, and, and again, it is speculative, she may find that she'd have an increased severity of of the illness. Now, of course, again, being fit and healthy, uh, you know, we'd we'd say the vast majority of women will will get off with a minor flu-like symptom. But with changes in lung function, changes in cardiovascular function as well, so the heart and the lungs, and of course, women's um, increasing oxygen requirements, if a woman were to become infected with COVID and then subsequently develop a pneumonia, um, of course, it can it can lead to requirements for admission to hospital. And there have been, there's been one reported case, certainly in the UK, of a woman who came into hospital at around 34 weeks gestation um, 
with severe pneumonia and restrictions not only to her heart but also to her heart function and kidney. But fortunately, you know, we're looking at a very, very small population of women. And to put that in context, every year we have the seasonal influenza um, uh, that influenza that comes out and a lot of women are susceptible to the flu and that's why we encourage women in pregnancy to take the flu vaccine. And, of course, there will be women who end up with uh, pneumonia, bacterial pneumonia secondary to the flu. So that happens anyway. And one of the good things about that is, you know, we've got a robust system that can manage these concerns should women become sick. I actually had the um, flu at I think it was 36 weeks with my last bob. So that wasn't um, fun, but yeah, it was right, yeah. yeah, it was a good outcome and I was fine. It was just, um, yeah, you were sick. But I think that's really, really reassuring, um, you know, to hear that. Um, in regards to coronavirus, is there any kind of information or research that you're aware of that it increases, um, you know, the chance of miscarriage or it's harmful to the baby at this stage? Yeah, so of course, I mean, again, a lot of the information is from our, our understanding with respect to SARS and MERS and, of course, what's coming out currently in China. One of the things we know in terms of those particular illnesses and what's happened most recently with COVID is that there doesn't appear to be any increase in miscarriages, and this is why I'm saying that women can, can become pregnant if they want to during this time. Uh, so certainly no miscarriages in the early parts of pregnancy. Uh, there certainly doesn't appear to be any abnormalities that occur to the baby itself. So something we call teratogenicity, where is the abnormality of development of the, of the fetus, and that doesn't appear to be the case. Um, in terms of preterm birth, uh, again, this doesn't appear to be the case for the SARS and MERS, and certainly for those women who have been infected with the COVID virus. But of course, if a woman does become very ill, then doctors or midwives may make the decision to uh, expedite delivery or bring on labour or alternatively deliver the baby via cesarean section in order to help the mother in terms of her overall lung function. So, you know, we know that from the point of view of, of a woman obtaining the COVID virus, that the transmission to the baby, as we understand it now, it's you know again it's very it's very fluid in terms of our understanding of what happens with COVID, but most studies coming out of the China don't suggest a transmission to baby. However, and again this is is data that's available to us just as of March twenty sixth actually. There's been one reported case of a baby who was born to a mother who was infected with COVID, who in fact actually did have evidence of infection in utero. But, of course, the bubble was okay. So, you know, we're mindful that this is an environment in which we've got limited information on, but the current information suggests that there's limited risks to, to baby. Okay, fantastic. And, and that leads into my next question, and that is obviously um, women needing to consider that if they did actually fall ill with COVID-19, if it is reasonable for them to start to consider the fact that a, a C-section or induction may be required, which which I think you already kind of considered, uh, sorry, talked through that. Is, is that similar with the flu also though at any stage if you're unwell? Is that something that would need to be considered? Yeah, so look, I think the, the, the most important thing is that your desires in terms of how you want to give birth, whether that be vaginal or alternatively via cesarean section, won't be influenced by either being infected or the potential of infection with respect to COVID. 
we might find ourselves in a situation where everything's absolutely fine with the baby, but you've now developed cough, cold, runny nose, where we know your capacity in order to go through a labor is going to be diminished. So given that, we might say, okay, you know what, let's delay the onset of labor. So some women will know that they're going to be induced, for example, for whatever reason at 39 weeks, let's say. And if they develop symptoms of shortness of breath, a cough, runny nose, fevers, well, of course, it's not the best time to bring a bubba into the world. So unless there was an obstetric indication or a medical indication for the baby to come out, we might wish to stabilize mum first before we bring baby out. And of course, that doesn't necessarily mean that the baby needs to come out via cesarean section. So there's no indication that just because a woman has developed COVID uh, infection that she would need a caesar. Okay, fantastic. With the um, entire country being told to stay at home at this stage, it's pretty understandable that women, especially pregnant women, are quite anxious about attending appointments, waiting in GP rooms. What's your advice to women in regards to their antenatal checkups? Well, firstly, I think it's important that, you know, we consider obstetric care and midwifery care and the care of women in pregnancy, whether they're seeing a GP, a midwife, an obstetrician, and we consider that as an essential service. And one of the things that happens in pregnancy is, you know, life, as I said, is going on and the baby inside needs to be monitored and certainly a woman needs to be monitored in terms of her blood pressure, the growth of the baby, making sure the baby's movements are fine and attending to all those routine antenatal investigations and ultrasound scans. Now, most, if not all, hospitals and private obstetricians and midwives have, and GPs have moved towards scaling back some of the appointments where there is a clinical, not a clinical need to see a woman so frequently. Part of that is harm minimisation. We don't want a lot of people coming into waiting rooms. So I think what one thing you can be reassured is two things. Number one, that you do need to continue to, to, to have good obstetric care or good midwifery care in terms of your pregnancy. Number two is that the hospitals, the private obstetricians' rooms are taking extra precautions. I would actually say it's safer to go into my rooms currently now than it would be to go into Woolies or Coles. You know, we're sterilising everything. Every patient that comes and sees me in my rooms, I'm wearing a mask and gloves, and that's not so much to protect myself, but it's to protect, you know, my patients from other patients effectively so that if I'm changing my gloves each time, well, then we know that there's not going to be any cross-infection or contamination. So, and the other thing, of course, to make mention is that if you find yourself in a position where you're feeling ill, but you're not, for example, feeling the baby move or you've got, you know, blood loss or something like that that's occurring in the pregnancy, that you don't delay seeing an obstetrician or a midwife or going to the hospital on the basis that you feel ill. You need to still be listening out and being conscious of your pregnancy. Contact the rooms ahead of time, contact the hospital ahead of time tell them you've got symptoms, and then we've got policies and procedures in order to manage that situation so that we can protect you and protect the other women in the, in the, in the hospital from potentially becoming infected. Hey guys, it's Nikki here popping in with a quick message. Due to the current situation with COVID-19, many women and couples have had their birthing courses sadly cancelled. Tiny Hearts is proud to be offering our Bump Birth and Beyond courses virtually. From the comfort of your own home, you can tune in live to our midwife educator and learn everything you need to know to tackle birth prepared, informed and empowered. 
Head over to tinyheartseducation.com to book in your course. We cannot wait to educate you guys soon. I'm not sure if you're aware, but there's been a lot of petitions floating around and we're certainly getting a lot of questions flowing in about the support person being able to attend the birth and be in the birth suite with them at the time. I believe that this is something that has um, happened in other countries where they have actually stopped that at this point. Um, I I can't even imagine how stressful that must be for um, a woman who has a birth that's impending, um, thinking that they may not have their support person there. What's happening to your knowledge at the moment in hospitals? Well, look, certainly there's no doubt that a trusted support person makes an, a, a massive difference in terms of not only the safety but also the well-being of a woman during labour and childbirth. And, and I think the you know jurisdictions across the world will make a, a, a different decision about whether a, a partner or support person is able to be present at the time of the birth. There's certainly, to my knowledge, no hospital, certainly in Victoria, and I doubt whether in Australia, where they've denied a support person or a partner coming to the birth. Um, of course, that has to be, be put in context that the partner needs to be asymptomatic. So, you know, we don't want a situation where someone who's got a cough, cold, runny nose is coming in to support a pregnant woman where there's a potential for infection, not only to the woman herself, but of course, to the staff that are supporting her during her pregnancy. So I think it would be something that wouldn't happen in our hospitals. But that said, you know, there's a lot of hospitals that are co-located with other 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 non-maternity type services where they might say limit the amount of people that are allowed. Well, certainly they're limiting the amount of people coming into the into the rooms now. But they, I can't see them limiting it so that the partner or the support person wouldn't be able to come. Yeah, and I think that's going to be really reassuring. Um, we obviously know you don't have a crystal ball, but I was in the same when I was having this conversation yesterday with a lady. I was saying that obviously that support person, like you said, has a lot to do with the well-being and the mental health of um, the person giving birth for, for that time, but also after. Um, and I can only foresee that um, it, it could potentially cause much longer-term issues if that was to happen. So let's cross our fingers for all of those people that that, um, you know, we make sure we stop moving around so then those support people can actually um, continue to attend. Um, in regards think, to... Just, just one yeah. thing, actually. So a lot of patients will note that they're, or women who are pregnant rather, will note that they're actually attending their appointments without their partner and that may mm-hmm. be leading to the level of anxiety. Um, and that's, again, because we're wanting to limit the exposure of pregnant women to other partners. So... So just because your partner's not attending an appointment doesn't mean they're not going to be able to attend the birth. And all of us, I would hope, as obstetricians, midwives working in either the public or the private hospital, are certainly engaging with the person that's not there. So, you know, we've got everyone on FaceTime. They're still seeing the baby on the ultrasound scan in the rooms. I'm still asking. Now, one thing, having been a a dad or a prospective dad in terms of of a pregnancy, you've got your own levels of anxiety as well. So you've got questions that you want to ask during the the, the whole pregnancy. And so I'm still encouraging my uh, pregnant women to to have their partners on on speed dial, so to speak. Hopefully they know the numbers or just press the <laughs> press the favourite icon uh, so that he or she can uh, ask a question. 
That's fantastic. I, and I have seen, I've been following you along and, I, and I've and i seen that you've been doing so many proactive things like that. And I think it's so important and it'd just be so reassuring for, um, you know, the couples that are under your care at the moment. But um, yeah, I can see as well how you're saying because they're not attending those appointments that obviously that anxiety is building. But um, but yeah, I, I think that'll put a lot of women and um, and men to ease knowing that it's, it's just to keep them safe at this point. And currently there's, there's nothing in place to stop them going to support the actual birth, um, which is fantastic. Sure. What about once babies here? Um, are they still encouraging skin to skin, even if a woman is confirmed with coronavirus? So again, in terms of separate, separating the baby from the mother, a lot of that's going to be done, that decision, I suppose, is going to be made at the time in conjunction not only with the obstetrician, the woman, but also and her partner but also the, uh, the neonatologist or the paediatricians. I think no one would make the decision to separate a baby from her mother lightly. Um, I think if a woman's relatively um, you know, healthy despite being infected from, with the COVID virus, then the decision to separate would, would probably would be made against. I think you know, there's no doubt we know that skin to skin and the initial processes of uh, maternal bonding are significant in those first uh, very few first few hours and, and certainly days and that separating a baby will impact that bonding will impact feeding as well so you know if a woman's very unwell well then that may be a, a different decision because in actual fact if she can't care for herself let alone um, you know breastfeed then the potential for her to be able to care for the baby will be diminished so healthy mum first because that's important in order to to look after the baby. But certainly no reason why we'd be suggesting separation unless there was a, a real reason. Sorry, you just broke up a little bit there. Um, fantastic. Okay, um, in regards to this might be falling in the same category of question, um, but a, a lot of questions coming through. Can I still breastfeed if I was diagnosed with um, COVID-19? Do you know anything about that? So again, there's been lots of studies looking at whether the virus is excreted from breast milk and we can't find any evidence for that. Um, and so at this point in time, there's certainly the benefits in terms of breastfeeding would far outweigh any potential risk and the risk would be small, we would have thought. If a woman does have COVID and she's, in, she's infective and contagious, then of course, during that period of time, you know, being vigilant in terms of hand hygiene, in terms of wearing a face mask in order to prevent the baby from being infected as well would be highly appropriate. But certainly breastfeeding, definitely something that should continue if a woman wants to. And, of course, if you're, if you're utilising um, breast pump and bottles, well, of course, the, the, the appropriate sterilisation of that equipment is going to be important as well. What about newborns? Um, we're getting a lot of I guess, new time parents um, or people who are about to give birth and they're saying, what, um, what kind of impact has COVID had on infants? Do you know anything in regards to any cases or how severe they are in newborns at this point? Not at this point. I mean, I did talk about that one case that ha happened on, on March 26th in the UK uh, of a baby that was infected soon after with mother. And of course, you know, what are we? We're only sort of five or six days after that. I mean, I think one of the great things about, again, the, the, this, pu this public-private hospital system that we have in Australia and then the excellent maternity care that we give um, uh, all, all Australian women is the fact that the, that then flows on to the excellent paediatric care that we give all babies. So 
you know, babies here in Australia, and we've talked about it before in some of the podcast series about, you know, bubbers who've, who've been needing to go to special care or to I- intensive care, uh, neonated intensive care. We've got robust systems in order to protect bubbers. So at the end of the day, even if a baby were to become sick and, and, and develop respiratory type symptoms, and then, you know, the ability for us to manage that would be exceptionally well. And, and I think you can be reassured. I think there's been a lot of people who are saying, look, you know, why? I've seen uh, some, some threads that have suggested going into hospital was a bad move. In actual fact, it is definitely the most safest place to give birth to a bubba, particularly if something were to happen to mum and particularly if something were to happen to baby in terms of the current climate. So, you know, you're going to have your baby monitored at least for the first one to four days, depending on whether you're in the private or the public sector. And that means that there's oversight quite quickly and readily should something uh, occur. Which I think gives you more reassurance um, in times like this. You want to that, those medical practitioners out there looking after your bub rather than at home in, in this kind of situation. Without a doubt. And part of the things about this in, in terms of, I suppose, I will sort of maybe talk a little bit about what's happening in labour rooms across or in birthing suites across Australia now, um, is that when a woman's in birth suite, the uh, the caregivers there more than likely, particularly in the active phases of pushing, will be wearing a mask, goggles, uh, a a gown as well, and gloves, of course, which they always do, because we know the transmission of um, of COVID nineteen not only comes from respiratory secretion, so you know people coughing, sneezing, and you then inhaling that, or alternatively picking it up from furniture, clothes, or whatever the case might be. But it also occurs from feces as well. So, you know, obviously when a woman's pushing in the latter parts of labour, nature takes its course within terms of what, what comes out both vaginally and also from the rectum. So, you know, we as, as caregivers need to protect ourselves and hence why we're wearing masks, why there's goggles and, and why there's gloves and gowns. And so it might, I, you know, I, whenever I watch television and I always see how, you know, they, the, the Americans, um, uh, the American doctors or midwives all seem to be like in surgical masks and gowns and gloves whenever they're delivering a baby. And it seems to me so impersonal because here in Australia, very rarely do we wear full surgical gear when we're, when, when we're helping catch babies. Uh, but now, unfortunately, uh, that's going to be the case. And so, you know, it does take that element of, of um, uh, humanness away from the whole birthing experience, but know that that's number one to protect us as, as healthcare workers so that we can continue our role in being able to support other women in, in their births as well. And I think that's a, a great thing for women who are about to give birth or in the near future. Um, just being aware of that, I think, that they know that they're expecting that that's what's going to happen. Um, I think that's when you can get a lot, a lot of anxiety is when you don't know what's going to happen and you go into birth uninformed. Um, so I think you just actually touching on that is is going to um, you know help a lot more women go, I know why it's happening, I understand it needs to happen and there'll be a lot more um, at ease I think when, when they're in that situation. So thank you for that. Um, in regards to uh, just to, uh, to finish up, what would you say to women? What would your one piece of advice at this time be to women or pregnant women? 
I think there's a, a fair few bits of advice, I think. First of all, I think this, the message that the government's giving with respect to staying at home is particularly important and to self-isolate. I think not only to protect ourselves as individuals, but to protect the broader community. I mean, I fear for the elderly and the immunocompromised more than I do for myself and for my own children, and even to a certain degree, my own pregnant patients. And so really, it's about protecting those people that are most vulnerable. But certainly from a, from a pregnant woman, of course, and being worried about, and, and there's a heightened maternal anxiety in terms of your basic instinct is to protect something that's growing inside you. And so that heightened level of uh, maternal instinct is, of course, going to contribute to the anxiety. So, so I think, um, you know, being mindful, social isolation, I think in addition to that, trusting your caregivers. One of the things that Australians find it difficult to do is also to trust our government. And I think at this point in time, trusting certainly not only the, the government, but our chief, our chief uh, medical officer is going to be particularly important at this, at this point in time. And then also having enough trust in terms of your own hospital because each individual hospital at this point in time has robust protocols that have been worked on um, over the course of the last couple of weeks in order to not only protect pregnant women, um, their partners, their babies, but also their, their medical and, and midwifery staff. And I think that's going to be a particular, a, a particular driver. And look, over and above every, everything else is if you've got any concerns and if you've got any queries that you reach out to people um, and that's, you know, your caregivers pro- predominantly, but also that if you're also struggling and, and particularly in this form of isolation, and I think not only in isolation in pregnancy, but soon in the, in the postpartum period of when you go home, when you would otherwise have the support of mum there, your auntie, your best mate, your sister, and you're not going to have that support. If you do find yourself having a heightened level of anxiety and, and, and even depression during this peri you know, around the birth, please reach out. I mean, one of the great things this government's done is put in place telehealth, which has allowed us access to psychologists. And I think at any point in time that you're feeling the stress and the stress is, t- is really getting to you and it's affecting your, your inner thoughts and the, your quality of life, that you reach out and seek that support. That's wonderful advice, Dr. Joe. So if, if those who are listening right now, they want to stay updated with trustable, trusted and reliable information, where can they find you? Well, they can go to my uh, Instagram handle, which is at, at Dr. Joseph Scroy, um, and also you can go to my website, which is drjoseph.com.au. I mean, I, I, I'm continuing. One of the things I think is difficult is there is a lot of noise and it's nice to just be able to put things in a way that people can understand and without the background confusion. So I'm posting stories on there all the time so that people have a clear understanding of what things will change because the advice that I'm giving you today is relevant right at this point in time and it may be completely different in a week or two. And so that's why I think it's important to keep up to date on a regular basis. Absolutely. And um, also, obviously, you can find Tiny Hearts at Tiny Hearts Education on Instagram and Facebook. I just wanted to thank you so much, um, Dr. Joe. This has been incredible insight. You're obviously out there. You have are seeing patients and you have a far better understanding of the ins and outs than any of us do. And I think that our entire community really appreciates your time today. Um, to everyone out there, stay safe. Um, don't forget to hit subscribe and you'll be notified when our next episode 
episode goes live, which will be hosted by Dr. Joe. See you guys. Bye for now.